Hello, welcome to Disrupt TV. This is episode number 77, and we're excited here today. Um, I'm Ray Wong, the uh, Constellation Research Founder and Principal Analyst, and I'm joined here with my awesome co-host, Dion Hinchcliffe, one of the top CIO influencers in the world. You've seen him with his awesome presentations and PowerPoints on ZDNet, and more importantly, my guest co-host for Disrupt TV show today. So welcome, Dion. Oh, we've, I think we lost Dion there. Um, so yeah, so we've got Dion here. Um, he's on the show, he'll join us and when he comes back in. But more importantly today, we've got our special guest, Kim Stevenson, the Senior Vice President and General Manager of Data Center Infrastructure at Lenovo. And if you remember Kim, she was one of our early Disrupt TV show guests. And uh, she was she's basically in charge of product management, business product marketing, building end-to-end -end teams, aligning product development, quality supply chain services, and customer experience all into one. She is one of the top, CEO's top, uh, IT leaders in the world, and more importantly, she spent time at Intel, she spent time at IBM, and she spent time in a whole bunch of other places, including EDS, and she's won a lot of awards, including Silicon Valley Business Journal's Best CIO, uh, Avantis, Top 10 Breakaway Leader, and Huffington Post's Most Social CIO, as well as the CIO 100 Award by CIO.com for four years in a row, and so we're really excited to have Kim on the show. Welcome to Disrupt TV, Kim. Hey, Ray. Uh, we're going to have to shorten that intro bio. <laughs> no problem. No problem. In a row. So we're really excited. So, yeah. So um, let's start with the first question. So why is this data center space so interesting to you? And is there a massive change? What's going on? Because when I think of data centers like, oh, it's a data center. Like, I'm not thinking about a lot of innovation, but you obviously must have saw something interesting for you to make the leap to Lenovo. Yeah. So, you know, Ray, I'll, I'll say, um, when I first started in data centers, we were kind of like the plumbers of IT. And um, it's since the advent of cloud, um, data centers have been comes, become the sexy part of IT. And really, what interests me most is we're sort of at this point where um, it's very clear how companies should be using the cloud. Uh, we have new workloads emerging, whether they're AI-based or IoT-based. Um, and you see the intersection between what will need to be performed in a customer's, you know, their own data center and work very well with what they send to the cloud. And <clears throat> those are hard problems in today's environment. And that's the exciting part. I mean, I always want to so solve hard problems. But it's, it's at the very beginning of this next era of what the future-defined data center will be, and I wanted to be a part of that. Um, and I think, actually, that the incumbents in today's space don't actually have a right to that business going forward because it's so dynamic and the changes are so rapid. Um, that makes Lenovo an exciting place because we really don't have as much of an entrenched legacy and therefore, we are free to innovate and disrupt going forward. And, and that, to me, makes an exciting value proposition, both from a career point of view, but also from a, you know, what we can offer to customers. Uh, hi, Kim. This is Diane Hinchcliffe uh, with the Constellation. Hi, a long time no see. Uh, so yeah. as you were just mentioning, Lenovo is uh, sometimes seen as an underdog in the space. Um, so what initiatives are you driving in your new role as the, uh, the head of the data center uh, infrastructure group to drive transformation in the space? Yeah, so um, 
uh, I'll just give a shout out to uh, the broader Lenovo team because we just came back from VMworld where our um, VX series was named one of the hot products out of VMworld. And I give that as an example only because it, it is the um, example of how we drive innovation at um, Lenovo. So we, we're really focused on this tight integration of hardware and software, wrapping that with services to make the customer experience and the customer journey effortless. Um, <clears throat> and, and that's ultimately, when you look at IT organizations, the shortage of skills, the amount of automation and integration work that can be done to improve overall operational performance, we think we're, we're the best at that. Um, four years in a row, we've been the most reliable x86 server platform and we just want to extend that up through the middleware and software layer and wrap it with services we just want to be the overall most reliable and trusted partner i'm so bummed i missed you i was actually in vegas last week i just came home <laughs> today i i know i i tried i it just was crazy it was so but it was so well run the event but it was just non-stop the whole time. So. Yeah, no, no, it was like pre-configured, pre-integrated, hyper-converged VX. That was a mouthful, I remember. So I saw yeah. that. I saw the <laughs> announcement. So, so while this data center transformation is moving forward, uh, you know, towards a focus on software, right? Getting in the software right in place. What? Who's, who cares about hardware, right? I'm a software guy. Who cares oh, about hardware? What's going on rain, with hardware? Rain, I know, rain. I know. <laughs> so you know, it's. Um, I love people that say, you know, that hardware doesn't matter. And I'm like, exactly what would you run that software on? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, you know, really, software provides the flexibility and um, allows you to, you know, automate and make things dynamic. But the, the robust hardware is what keeps the business running. <clears throat> and um, more and more of the um, differentiation that's coming in hardware is specialized to the workloads. So that's why, why you've seen the growth in GPUs, right? That yep. it's a specialized workload and you can't run those algorithms without that kind of a GPU chip. Uh, and so there's a lot of important pieces that the hardware plays, but hardware alone doesn't do anything either, right? Which is why we're so focused on this tight integration between the hardware and the software and then wrapping that with services to make it easy. Yep, um, that totally makes sense. So, so Kim, you you know you were one of the most well known uh, CIOs in the in the industry. Um, you were a CIO at Intel, and you did a lot of great things there. Um, and uh, you know, as uh, the CIO role is changing, and we see that more and more IT is moving out to the cloud. And now you have this this interesting new role at Lenovo, um, uh, at where arguably you could say you know this is where the CIOs are going. They're 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 moving out to the cloud. What advice would you have to other other IT leaders kind of on that fork in the road saying, you know, IT is rapidly shifting. I have to make decisions if I want to be where the most exciting part of the game is. Is that on the vendor side? Is that on the you know the customer side? What advice would you have? Well, or or is it in the boardroom? Because you see a lot of yeah. companies adding CIOs to their board. Um, so one, you have to stand back and say, what's going on, right? Um, and basically every business is a tech business. So the, the skills that we gather as IT professionals are more valuable than I think individuals realize. Um, we possess unique knowledge about how companies operate because we look at the business from a horizontal, you know, from order to cash, right? Not from the sales execution part. And that is so valuable 
and what I try to encourage other IT professionals is make sure you're you are not undervaluing the knowledge you have about how the company operates because really you're the only one in the company that looks at it across the process and so you can it depends on the the agenda the strategic agenda for the company but you can either you know in find ways to improve the overall operational performance of the company driving improvements to the bottom line or you can find new growth areas where should we be wrapping our traditional products and um, services with additional IT services and so I give examples like you know um, payments so payments are an IT service nowadays yes. and so right how does your company get paid how do you want to get paid right how do you you know you can change the strategic agenda and for things that are as an IT professional really aren't hard for us to conceptualize but they are hard for non IT people so the farther you get away from the tech industry the harder it is to conceptualize how important some of these things can transform your um, company and so you know I could say payments I could say customer acquisition I could say a lot of things and um, it's true across the board you know which is why I think those companies who don't exploit technology are going to get pummeled by it actually and therefore you need to make sure your company doesn't get pummeled right <laughs> actually as you said I don't want to get pummeled <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but hey, you know you, you raised a really good point earlier you're talking about the the rise of GPUs the rise of specialized workloads um, we're, we're seeing this especially with massive computing requirements for AI and blockchain and edge requirements right on all the IOT devices on the side um, yep. While a lot is moving to the cloud as in public cloud there's also a lot of specialized workloads moving to private clouds and right. so when you think about massive compute requirements like AI on one end, which public cloud might be more efficient, to very specialized ones on IoT on the edge, like what are you seeing? What's that strategy and how does that change data centers and business models? Because I don't see people moving data centers away. And Holger Mueller, who just came back from Europe, he, he was doing a trip talking to you know CIOs out in Europe, and they're all like, we're not moving the data center. That's for American operations. You know, <laughs> we can put them <laughs> on the cloud. We're keeping our yeah. data center. So well, you, what you really there is a, a noticeable shift. You know, ten years ago is when we started talking about data center consolidation. I remember I had ninety six data centers at Intel, and I was going to consolidate them down to twenty four, and. Um, and that a lot of that consolidation did happen because what we consolidated was uniform workloads, um, right? Backup. We didn't need ten backup sites. We got to you know a more rational view of how we would handle backup and recovery. But now you're hitting the next wave, and you're thinking about data centers are purpose built. Yep. So cloud, look, cloud, whether it's public or private, cloud is a delivery model. That's what it is. It improves yep. the delivery of the service. And you should use anything that improves the delivery of your service. So you should be using a cloud. Now you have to say, what am I trying to get done? What's the workload and the nature of the workload? Some workloads like won't tolerate the latency that's required um, when you're moving things between locations. So, so my EDA workload at Intel. Right, that my best engineer would say to me, Kim, when you can solve the speed of light problem, then we will talk about moving that workload to the cloud, you know, because it's a physics issue. But then there are also things that are really your core company's proprietary information. And if you're saying, I'm going to invest in that, 
and I want to keep control of it. Not because you want to have a data center, but because you want to drive value into the company. What's the best way to do that? Right. And so I always try to elevate the conversation to what is the company trying to get done and how do you fulfill that strategic agenda? Yeah, so Kim, you got uh, on one end, you got the, 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 the technology aspect of cloud. You have things like GPUs and you were just talking about backhaul that until we solve the speed of light problem, you know, architecting global cloud applications is going to be a real challenge. Right. But you were talking about payments uh, and things like, and more business focused aspects like that. How's you know, when we talk about Lenovo and the vision for you know hardware is still you got to have this or you don't you don't have any operational capability in the cloud, but businesses are increasingly looking at the outcome of of all of this. You know, you were talking about these differentiated workloads. How are companies going to grow up and you know argu arguably we're in this now post cloud era where we're really just talking about all we care about is the outcome. We don't care about that plumbing and technology anymore. That's right. That's right. And. Um, and that's a better place to be um, from a business perspective, but you know, from a technologist perspective, make no mistake, um, that architecture, the infrastructure and the network is a huge, huge value to the company. In fact, I would say network is the next great limiter. You know, we've virtualized the compute, we're virtualizing the storage, right? Now you have to look at the network layer and say, what's the right ne network architecture? Because it gets very complicated when you start talking about the interaction between multiple types of workloads coming from multiple locations. And ultimately, you're trying to get value from that data that you're moving. <laughs> you're making me smile. Uh, we had this little, I had this little conversation with uh, Vint Cerf. Uh, he was at our conference last year. And uh, I said, hey, Vint, what's, what's a cloud? Right? What's the analogy of the cloud? It's, uh, OK, mainframe time sharing. OK, we get it. Uh, what's the analogy for? You know, one of these devices. Ah, it's really a VT100, right? It's a dumb terminal. These are a little bit smarter, right? <laughs> and and they go, you know, what's what's the analogy for uh, NoSQL, right? Um, it's uh, basically you know uh, pairs, right? Key value stores, key value pairs, right? Yeah. And so this is the guy who invented TCP/IP, right? I'm like. So what's the equivalent to TCP IP in the cloud, right? Or not, what's the equivalent for networking in the cloud? And I go, dude, token ring's coming back. And he's slapping. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to token hey, ring. Come on, Banyan you know, Vines. <laughs> at one point, I was a cost engineer on token ring cards for IBM. We made a lot of money back in those days. <laughs> yeah, but, but think about it. Think about it. You just said it, right? The, the workloads are spread out. The networks are in different places. You know, I yeah. mean, those guys at Banyan Vines are going to be hot again. I mean, because I need token ring right now. So. Yeah. Well, in you know, one of my mentors who, you know, said to me once, and it just always stuck with me, he said, look, Kim, history repeats itself in modern ways. And so you do see this cyclicality of these, you know, an era of compute and an era and, and we're hitting in that, that next era, but you have to look, draw from history to predict what is going to be the next the next great wave and and networking is is one of those things that I think are um, limiters when you think about the ultimate potential that can technology can deliver if I think about you know billions of IOT devices that I'm trying to aggregate really I only want the key information I don't want every bit of information yep. right I want to process some of that at the point of the endpoint. I want to process some of it at the edge so I can communicate with multiple endpoints. And I want to process some of that in the back end. And just differentiating what goes where is really an interesting problem. 
But that's the exact same problem that banks first um, solved when they put online banking. Yep. When they had to decide, you know, what transactions were they going to expose at the customer layer, right? What transactions were they going to keep in the back? And so there are these problems have been solved before, but just not for the specific use case. And, and I think drawing on that history becomes a really important way to innovate. Yeah, well, we have the whole scale problem too. I think that we've never faced the kinds of size of the business challenges, yeah. the size of the infrastructure, billions. And I think you know it's really tens and hundreds, soon hundreds of billions of devices. Yeah, so it's a exciting times for sure. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, so um, what what's the tech scene like in North Carolina? What's different about North Carolina versus the Valley? I know like RTP is on fire, lots of startups oh. popping in there, but but share with us what, what what's going on out there. So buying a house was just as hard as it is in Silicon Valley because there were lots of competition. Traffic is just as bad as Silicon Valley. <laughs> well, only in Cary if you're out there. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, so for me, it's a little bit like coming home because I actually started in Research Triangle Park my career, my very first job when I was a co-op with IBM during college. Wow. Um, Yep. So, so it's a little bit like coming home, but it's a it's a rich community of biopharmaceutical companies, IT companies, and um, you know, uh, software companies. We've just got a lot uh, going on in the area. So it's 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 a really exciting place to be. But um, so far, I have to say, I don't know anybody outside of Lenovo. So because it's been pretty busy my first ninety days. <laughs> That's right. It's only ninety days. So. Yeah. Yeah, that first that first hundred days is so so critical. So, Kim, you're arguably uh, one of the very top women in technology, and you know the, the Odyssey continues in, the, in that whole conversation in, in in the Valley. You know, we've seen interesting uh, discussions this year. What's the dynamic like at Lenovo? You know, something had to draw you there uh, as you know as a, as a, as a leading exemplar of, of technology. Yeah. So, well, it's interesting. Um, uh, we had a um, chairman's, our chairman and CEO was in town a couple weeks ago and we had um, a innovation brainstorming session with his staff um, and just a few other people. So um, the group that was in there, we, we sit in this round circle, it's very informal, and we're talking about disruptive technologies that, you know, are we, are we in or are we not? What should we be doing? It's not a planned discussion or anything like that. And I looked around the room and I thought, huh, half this room are women, right? Um, and you know, the head of corporate strategy is a woman, the head of legal is a woman, you know? And um, so half the people in the room were women. And then I look at um, data center group, so, you know, and you know, half of our staff, um, of the president's staff is women. And so, you know, on the one hand I go, wow, what a different place. What a different time than you know most of my career, um, but I honestly believe that um, you know more and more decisions are being made about the best candidate, um, especially at the senior level. And so people, you know, companies are just so hungry for great talent mm -hmm. that I I do think that the best candidates are getting picked. Um, I do still think we have a pipeline problem for all diverse candidates in tech. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have, um, you know, noticed, you know, a number of African-American colleagues that I think, huh, why aren't they progressing? 
And so while, we, while we're making progress on the women's issue, I think multiple of our, of our other underrepresented populations need more attention um, to find out um, what holds them back, why is that happening, and systematically remove those barriers. Um, and so, you know, I'll say um, I'm always going to be an advocate for diversity and I'm always going to be an advocate for women, but I am starting to think more about the other underrepresented populations and are we doing them a service to create an environment where they thrive in. Yeah, no, that's a huge issue in the, in the space and it's really about, it's a 40-year pipeline problem, right? Mm -hmm. It takes about 40 years to get someone to that level and uh, helping to create mentors along the way. Hey, Kim, thanks so much for being on the show. You were on episode number three in February 16. Welcome to I episode know. number 77, and hopefully see you at Constellation's event. We are seeing Kim Stevenson. You can follow her at Kim, S-T-E-V-E-N-S-O-N. -S -S Get the extra S if you're trying to follow her. So, <laughs> all right, thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks, Diane. Enjoy the Poconos. Very, very cool, man. Diane, look at this. This is, uh, we are moving. 20 yeah. minutes flies by super fast. It really does. Look, you have someone like came on board. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's amazing. So we've got Anna Martell, our next guest. We're going to do his bio, but he's the CEO and co-founder at Gravity. Um, and uh, you can follow him at A-R-M-A-T-E-L for those following on Twitter. Um, Adam is the CEO, but he's, it's the first technology startup especially focused on building AI applications for frontline fundraisers of nonprofit organizations. Think about this, putting AI to work in the world of nonprofits. So before starting this, he was at Babson as a major's gifts fundraiser for which is where he developed this concept for Gravity, revolutionary software. But more importantly, he's got an understanding of what nonprofits need to do, how they can be successful, and how they raise money to support their causes throughout this. And throughout his years, he's been a frontline fundraiser. So very, very important. He's founded three companies, a serial entrepreneur, and a diverse and eclectic background in not only advertising, public relations, journalism, and collegiate athletic coaching. We're going to have to talk about that. Um, he has also spent time as a senior financial analyst at a major investment management firm where he oversaw the international finance department that guaranteed the accuracy of approximately $50 billion in international and domestic trades. He is a graduate from Merrimack College with a degree in communications and business and is an MBA candidate at Babson College. So Adam lives in Boston with his wife and two beautiful daughters. So Adam, tell us more about how you decided to found Gravity and what, what is behind this in fundraising and AI? Absolutely. Well, I'm so excited to be here and uh, thank you so much for having me. We are, uh, we're so excited. So we, we started Gravity. I was a major gifts officer at Babson. I was a fundraiser. And uh, the challenges that we saw there were the challenges that sort of every frontline fundraiser or sales professional sees where we have all this data about our donors or our leads, but the systems that we have weren't really developed for us as end users. You know, they were really wonderful for reporting. They were really, really great for our managers to, to tell us what we've done, really descriptive data. But I spent more time putting data into the CRM than, you know, the, the CRM really helping me. And uh, I met a guy at Babson who was absolutely a genius. He had built portfolio analytics systems on Wall Street. And I had built, I used AI and machine learning to really optimize uh, sales enablement uh, for, for stocks. And what we found was that donors look a lot like stocks in terms of all their data. And uh, we started surveying the, the, the sort of scene of AI and, and nonprofit data. And we found that the data that nonprofits have about their donors is really richer than any data set in the world about individuals because it's updated so, uh, so frequently and so uniquely. And uh, it's just an amazing, amazing space. And obviously, the work that the organizations do are, are so important. And uh, that's what really gets us going. Yeah, so uh, Adam, this is Diane. Um, so let, let's talk about 
fundraising at nonprofit organizations, what are the challenges there? I mean, you know, you, you apparently saw a need uh, for, for some solution in the space. What were the pain points that you really see in, see in you know, fundraising? Yeah, yeah, so I was a major gifts officer. All, all major gifts officers and all frontline fundraisers and nonprofit organizations, they have portfolios of donors. You know, they're between 150 and 200. Um, the challenge is that, you know, at Babson, we had 37,000 alumni, and the top 10% of our donor pool made up 90% of our donations. And we see that across the board where the, there's a real concentration of wealth at the very top, which means that there's around 37, 3,800 donors at every organization that has that many donors that can make major gifts. And uh, we only had 10 frontline fundraisers, so we were only talking to around 2,000 of 3,700 donors that had capacity. Um, and it was really because we had all this data and we had the CRM, but we weren't being enabled by our technology. Uh, so the challenge and the pain for us was that we had more donors than we could handle. Uh, same as sales leads, you know, salespeople want more sales leads, but if you have to spend time figuring out which donors to get to, what to ask them about, sort of doing research on their records and figuring out which ones to get to, you're not gonna spend time inspiring donors to make gifts. And this is where we saw technology could really make a difference. You know, it was a big pain point for us. Wow. So look, AI is a hot trend. And you know, what do you mean by AI, right? Yeah. Like what, what is this thing? Like I, I saw something about a first draft. Yeah. How, does that, how does that work? This is kind yeah. of interesting to me. Totally. So that was a natural progression. So when we started the company, what were the challenge we were truly trying to solve was, could we predict which donors were going to make the next biggest gift over the next three month period with the data we had within the CRM? And essentially, we were trying to take the cognitive functions of frontline fundraisers and turn them into a platform. So where we have driverless or self-driving cars, you know, version one of self-driving cars were triptychs. You guys remember those? AAA? We used to go up and down the East Coast and my dad would take the triptych and he would flip it. You know, we'd be in New Jersey and he'd take it again and flip it and we'd be in you know, it, 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 keep going south, keep going south. Version two was a GPS. You know where you're going, you plug it into a computer, it tells you where to go. Version three is, you know, the, where we are now, where it's uh, assisted parking. Um, we have these cars that can help us stop, help us park. And version four is essentially removing our cognitive functions so I can spend time talking to my children while the car drives me somewhere. Exact same thing in frontline fundraising. We have all this data in version one are spreadsheets. Version two is having a database that's interactive. Wait, version, wait, wait, write your own emails? I think right, it's emails. That, that, that's right. So version three is actually writing your own emails. So when you think about it, we started trying to make predictions. Then we got to the point where we said, you know what, let's stop. Let, let's, let's not stop there because everybody stops at analytics. Can we make the analytics actionable for the end user? Truly verticalized AI. And we got to self-writing emails. So we cracked the code in three different areas. One is that we can write emails on behalf of the frontline fundraisers that are personalized to each individual donor, no matter where they are in their life cycle. The second is that we can actually deliver the emails through a, without an API to an email inbox, and then we can apply machine learning to refine the emails to match the writing styles of each frontline fundraiser. Think about the implications that can have for everybody in every space. Instead of you going into work and having emails written to you, you go into work and you have emails written for you that you can curate and personalize and get out. We essentially start you on second base is the metaphor we're using now, and uh, it's working. Well, that's fascinating, Adam. I mean, uh, the, you know, we hear all this conversations around artificial intelligence. Uh, a lot of people have different definitions for it. Uh, and I got to believe, you know, you're, you're almost sounds like your tool can do a lot of a salesperson's job. And there's this whole uh, worry that, that eventually, uh, you know, uh, everyone's work will be automated away from them. How do you explain AI to your clients? How would you get, uh, you know, explain it to a salesperson that might be worried about, hey, this is going to end up doing my job someday? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, back when Excel came out, accountants were really worried that Excel was going to take their jobs, but it never did. It made them more efficient and allowed them to get more customers and more clients. 
Same thing's happening with AI. I mean, we see that our fundraisers that work with us can get to five or six or 10 times more donors because instead of going through the processes of figuring out which donors to talk to, what to talk to them about, writing a beautifully curated email for each donor, they come into work and they're already written for them. They can do that work and what we're finding is that they can go home on time. They can, they can do the work, they can do more than they had done before and they can go home and see their families and they can get to more donors and get more done. And they can really, we can free them up to, to do the things that computers can't do, which are really inspire donors to make gifts and build relationships and uh, we can take the busy work out. Wow, and there are different types of AI here, right? We, we talk about proactive versus reactive AI, um, you know, humanized versus dehumanized AI. How do you, how do you get yeah. there? Like, what are yeah. you doing to help achieve that? Yeah, so we are, I mean, we're, we're the first ones that we think have really introduced proactive artificial intelligence. For anybody that uses Gmail, when you're on your phone, if I, Ray, if I send you an email, said, Ray, you know, I'd love to find a time to grab coffee with you, Google would say, hey, respond to Adam with yes, no, maybe, and here's a time. What we're saying is you would receive an email that says, hey, you know what? Adam might be great to have on your show. Here's an email you can send to him. Now's the right time because he just released first draft. You probably want to talk to him about it. And the email will be written for you. So reactive AI is essentially you know, data coming to you and reacting to what you're doing. Proactive AI is actually telling you what you should be doing so you can do great things. And we've been talking about humanized and dehumanized AI for a little while now. And our thesis is that uh, you know, AI is going to go in two different directions. So one direction is humanized AI, where we have chatbots, we have Siri. Dehumanized AI are going to be nail guns. We're essentially going to be able to build technology that can help people do more, but they're going to be tools, and they're not going to need to be humanized. I don't need to talk to gravity. I need gravity to do something for me the same way a hammer or a nail gun would, and I want to hammer in more nails. And essentially, I want to get to more leads and more donors, and that's what we've been able to do. You know, it's, it's a great story, Adam. You've got um, you know bringing AI to the nonprofit sp uh, space, which I worked uh, for uh, with quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I know their challenges, and and that uh, you know they often have really small IT departments. Um, so how do you you know how do you situate something like uh, Gravity in in a, in a place like that? Are you designing it specifically for smaller teams, or is it are you aiming at larger nonprofits? Yeah, no, so we're, we're aiming across the board right now. Uh, I mean, really, you know, we've been lucky because mo most of the big CRMs have chosen to work with us, which means that we have access to their data. We can turn it on for most of the, the CRM customers. We sit on top of every CRM, and fundamentally, we believe that CRM is the cup that holds the water. We want to be what, what the fundraisers and what the end users actually do with the water, and that's what we want to really be. Um, essentially, it really doesn't matter. We think for the small organizations, it's wonderful. For the large organizations, it's just as wonderful. If you have a small organization with a donor base of 10,000, we can help you get to more of those donors. If we have a, a large organization with a donor base of 100,000, we can help you get to more of those donors. Uh, but really helping organizations get to more donors, tell their story more efficiently, more proactively, and close more gifts to generate revenue uh, is what we're able to do. No, that makes sense. Now, when we look about, you know, when we think about AI, well, there's seven elements to success, right? Your, yeah. The data that you have, which are from the CRM teams, that makes sense. Uh, the algorithms that you have in place, uh, the compute power that's at hand, which is typically in the cloud, uh, time compression, you'll be able to get things done very, very quickly, yeah. domain expertise, which is what you're bringing to the table, AI being the UX and, and recommendations, um, what do you see your differentiators in this marketplace? Because yeah. it's, there's a lot of moving parts here. Yeah, yeah. so there's a few. I mean, first of all, uh, what's unique about us is that you know, nonprofits have never really been able to leave in the, lead in the technology space because they have to balance their budgets. They have to put most of their money towards the causes they're supporting, and then they have to put some of their money towards raising money. What we found is that because nonprofits have such an amazing set of data about individuals, they're primed to leave the data space and really the AI innovation because AI's, you know, on the balance sheet, AI really looks at data. It doesn't look at money. I mean, an organization can have trillions and trillions of dollars, but if we don't have data to support artificial intelligence, 
the intelligence is not going to be there. It's not going to be wonderful. Uh, when we talk about time compression, I mean, we're truly saving time for the end users. You know, it, we're, we're doing jobs for them, which is what we think AI should be doing. The same as self-driving cars. You shouldn't have to drive your car. You shouldn't have to write the initial emails. Um, and then really the actionability. You know, this is the first time that proactive artificial intelligence has been introduced. And really being able to take action on the artificial intelligence and not just having descriptive analytics, but actually having prescriptive analytics that are doing things for you that help you hit your end goals uh, is what we think is going to change the world. The fundraising efficiency is important, I see. <laughs> that's, right. that's an important metric, apparently, that's in the nonprofit right. industry. That's right, so, that's right. So, got it. Yeah, so Adam, you've, uh, you've now been on the, the journey of the startup, uh, which yep. so many have before you, and, and you've you've hit all the, the bumps in the road and, and you know, the, the enormous amount of work and effort to get to a, to a product that people really, really want. Yeah. What advice do you have for other startup CEOs uh, where, where we are today in the industry and in that you know, the fund, funds are not as available as they used to be? Yeah. Um, you know, it, talent is really, really hard to get because they're being sucked up by the big companies. What advice do you have? Yeah. for other founders. Yeah, there's really, th I think, three pieces of advice we usually give. The first is solve a problem that's a first-person problem. Uh, make sure that when you're applying artificial intelligence, you're not just talking about artificial intelligence or machine learning or any of the buzzwords. Actually solve a problem that's defined with artificial intelligence. Make sure it's a problem that you understand. I mean, we see far too often founders and, and co-founders and, and even folks that are sort of mid-level trying to solve problems they don't really understand. And we think artificial intelligence is best applied to problems that people truly understand. So you really need domain expertise. The second is to, to find a, a great co-founder. Um, I wasn't a technical co-founder. I found a technical co-founder at Babson when I was getting my MBA. His name's Rich Palmer. Uh, he's a genius. You know, he has so much experience on the tech side, and this company wouldn't be what it is without his experience and without his ability to be able to move us forward quickly. Uh, and then find a great set of investors and a great board. I mean, I, you know, I've talked to a bunch of CEOs who are scared of their board. You know, they don't interact well with their board. Um, we have the most supportive, wonderful board who has helped us and moved us along, you know, helped us through tough times, really celebrated us with, with good times, and our investors have done the same thing. So I think if you can get all three of those things in place, you can really build a successful company. Yeah, Fred Wilson says that uh, a lot of startups in his portfolio have had to pivot. Uh, did you go right into AI, or did, did you guys have to make a major course correction? Uh, um, yes, we don't talk about it so much as a pivot. We, we talk about it in terms of, uh, of moving forward. So we, when we started, we wanted to be able to predict which donors are going to make the next biggest gifts. But we found that wasn't quite enough because users still had to log into a platform. So our thesis became, listen, if we could get the data to the frontline fundraisers, Without them having to log into a platform, we could provide them the same benefits that a SaaS would provide them, but it would be in their email. And fundamentally, you know, fundraisers and most salespeople only have three screens open. They have their CRM, they have their email, and they have their calendar. So we thought if we could capture the email and the calendar, we could really make a difference. And from there, we found that we could really communicate a lot in email. Um, and so it was more of a progression in us understanding that descriptive analytics, predictive analytics, predictive intelligence wasn't going to be enough. We had to actually do something for the end user. Um, so I think it was more of a progression uh, than a pivot, but it's it certainly, it's not where we started. Uh, but the I really listened to what the user's pain is and what they're trying to accomplish. That's right. And, and despite the fact I was a frontline fundraiser, I mean, every day we are on calls with our customers and our customers are so gracious with their time. And, you know, they all want us to be successful because they're, they're doing things they've never done before. I mean, we had an organization raise $1.5 million in the fourth quarter more than they had raised the entire year before. And it's a small organization. The impact is, is just amazing. Uh, so we're trying to find ways to accelerate that impact for other organizations.
how is the startup scene where you are in Boston? Like, what's uh, are there good resources? Are there good yeah. mentors? Like, uh, who who are you turning to for advice? Yeah, it's it's awesome. I mean, it is just great. The um, you know, Launchpad Ventures, uh, they're uh, the Angel Syndicate here. Uh, they've been really big supporters of us. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of VCs. Uh, Stage One Ventures is a really wonderful VC in Boston. Um, all of these folks know each other, which is probably the biggest benefit of being in Boston. Um, you know, the Valley's like that as well. But when you're in Boston, I mean, it's such a small town that all the AI companies, we all sort of know each other. We're all picking each other's brains. Because AI is so verticalized and AI has to be applied to such a vertical solution, you know, if you're AI for HR, if you're AI for self-driving cars, you're not competing with us. I and mean, we don't think of ourselves mm -hmm. as competitors, but there's so much we can learn together and move the industry forward quickly. Um, and I think that's the biggest benefit is finding folks that are really facing the same challenges that we're facing in the same space that we're, that, that we're playing in, but not the exact same vertical and uh, using their learning to help us move forward and then doing the same and being reciprocal. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Adam, who do you, who did you really look up to when you first got into the space uh, in terms of other startups? You know, there, there there's a lot of folks doing thing, great things in CRM. Of course, there's Salesforce, which is the you know 800 pound gorilla in the industry, uh, and the amazing things that they have done. Yeah. What uh, you know, who did you look to really as, for inspiration? Yeah, I mean, we you know we looked at Salesforce, Blackbaud, um, Roy Solutions. They're a small CRM in Boston, and uh, and they are really wonderful. They're sort of at the forefront of the CRM technology space. Uh, Abila, you know, community brands down in Austin. We, we've been looking at all those folks because fundamentally, we always knew that we were never going to be a bottom-up CRM. We were never going to hold data, so we were looking at what they were doing and trying to figure out where to go from there. Um, really, it was individuals, though. I mean, we look at uh, Christopher Mirable and Ham Lord. Uh, Raymond Chang, uh, we, I mean, those guys, uh, David Baum, if you know him, I mean, these folks are, are, are titans in the industry. And, uh, and they've, you know, taken two young entrepreneurs under their wings and really helped us shape the company, but also given us the freedom to make mistakes and, and really make great strides and, and be successful in our own ways. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't be where we are without, uh, without those type of folks. No, this has been great. Thanks for your advice and thanks for your insight. We're here with Adam Martel, CEO and co-founder at Gravity. You can follow him on Twitter at A-R-M-A-T-E-L. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Adam. Wow. We've, uh, you know, Diane, we've been talking to people from two great startup cities, uh, RTP and, of course, Boston and the Cambridge area. Definitely a lot of insights there. What are some of the top cities you've been seeing, Diane, like where startups have been forming and, and are really thriving? Well, I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening down in Austin, of course, right? Uh, you know, yep. they're, uh, uh, it, it's, it's affordable living down there, uh, which I think really matters. It's been a huge issue, I think, in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, New York continues to you know, be, a, be a, a great space uh, for, for startups, and I see a lot of activity. And you, know, you see you know, companies like Sprinkler you know, creating multi-billion dollar organizations on, on the East Coast, which you really expect to see only on the West Coast. Uh, and also some interesting things happening in, in places like Portland, where you would n normally expect. Um, uh, and I think you're seeing some uh, some outliers there that uh, that are creating some great startups. And DC as well, where you are as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so there's always some really interesting uh, uh, players in the DC area. It's just not as large as these other areas. And our cost of living is similar to the Valley, though. Oh God, that's horrible. Oh hey, let's. Uh, who do we have next? Oh, we got Doug. Doug, our vice president, principal analyst at Constellation Research. And uh, Doug, as you know, has been. You know, our VP looking at data-driven decisions. He's leading that research, how organizations employ data analysis to reimagine their business models and gain a deeper understanding of their customers. So Doug's research is also looks at how innovative applications of data analysis require a multidisciplinary approach with information and orchestration technologies, continuing through BI, data visualization and analytics, and moving into NoSQL and big 
data analysis. So he's been covering a lot of these areas. He's looking at insight-driven business models and interest in, and how they are of interest to the C-suite, but more importantly, um, to ex executives like CEOs, chief digital officers, CFOs, and CMOs um, that are really trying to figure out how to tie this to anything from marketing to supply chains. Doug was the former executive editor of Information Week um, and also one of the top influencers of CIOs and decision makers around the world. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Hello, Diane. Hello, Ray. Good time of year. Yeah, it's great to see you, Doug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very, very cool. So topic one is this topic that you've been going deep on, which is really on smart analytics, right? And what's going on here? Like what is there is it is this like a is this kind of the beginning of the trends? Is this kind of the middle of the trend? Who are the vendors that are popping up here? What's going on? Very much the beginning. Um Adam was saying that AI is so verticalized. But I'm uh, looking at how it's becoming available as a horizontal set of technologies because I think companies are going to want to be, you know, building their own AI and not just buying it as an application. So I'm doing a survey right now, kind of a market overview of smart BI and analytics features. I, I hesitate to call it AI. I think a lot of the people in this space, the data management professionals, are a little jaded. You know, they saw that first round of AI. I think they're a little cynical about uh, things being you know, hyped as, as AI, and I think the vendors are very cautious about using that term. Um, they're very familiar and have been using things like machine learning, and 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 uh, they know what deep learning is. Uh, those things have, uh, the machine learning at least has been around for decades. It's something that a lot of these data scientists, data professionals have used. Um, but now it's showing up all over the place. It's showing up in self-service data prep. It's showing up in data exploration, data analysis and then um, in the area of predictive and prescriptive. But the difference is that these technologies are being democratized and they're being used to democratize, to bring these capabilities. Uh, as Adam was saying, you know, they had the data, but they couldn't get at it. Well, the idea is using these technologies and exposing these technologies in a way that makes it accessible to stream business users, whether that's through automation or through natural language interaction, the ability to, to, to query and do things with natural language. Uh, for, but these are people that don't know how to spell SQL and don't know the first thing about which machine learning technique to choose. What would mean like Cortana, yeah. tell Alexa I'm here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. I, there, there's activity there's, uh, in the space in my survey I'm turning up. I think I have more than 25 startups that are you know, training on this area, the, the data professionals and making analytics and BI more accessible to business users. But the established vendors aren't going to just sit back, um, you know, the likes of SaaS and SAP and IBM and Tableau and, and all those guys are, are, you know, making acquisitions and working on things organically to bring these smart features to their, to their uh, yeah. So, so Doug, this really brings up, I think, an important point in that there's a lot of marketing talk around artificial intelligence, but the serious data scientists really don't only want to talk about machine learning, deep learning, and things like that. And so you see the business users, I think, are, are have a hard time discerning where the, where the real value is. Yeah. How do you bucket AI versus machine learning and deep learning? How, how are, are they different? Are they different, or is this all becoming you know, market textures now, essentially? Well, I've been focusing mainly on machine learning techniques, uh, things trained up more structured, 
uh, data, and then deep learning techniques, uh, more often trained at, at more unstructured information, image, voice. Um, and that's where I see those two tangents. AI, I really kind of um, think that it gets more legitimate when AI tends to be very verticalized. You see these um, whole applications that have context. Um, without that context and without a specific business problem that they're going after, to me, um, it, it's simply various techniques of and use use of things like machine learning and deep learning. Yeah, no, we're seeing this big shift, and and then how people define analytics and ML is getting pretty crazy. Um, so, so let me ask you, what defines a smart app versus a off the shelf AI app? Well, I think I think those two terms are kind of synonymous to me. I look at you know some of these uh, applications coming out from you know like. Uh, Salesforce Einstein and uh, what SAP is talking about with Leonardo, Oracle Adaptive Intelligent Apps, uh, what Enforce is talking about with Coleman. Um, they're talking about work, uh, making these packaged applications smarter. Uh, what I've been looking at in, in this look at just general horizontal analytics and BI capabilities is, is uh, bringing AI techniques to a platform that they can use to build smart data-driven applications. So some of the themes I've been seeing lack that context of a specific application. What they're doing is building context by looking at the roles and the rights and the usage of, of data, how people are looking at data, what they're looking at, what others like them are looking at. So it's sort of the graph of interaction with data and the graph of that analysis of data. And um, you know, there's startups in this area like Digital Reasoning that uh, are, are working on this. But a lot of the vendors that I've I've talked to have it in their have it in their uh, roadmap, and and they're working on it. Um, and it helps to if you if you can take that graph and understand what people are looking at, what others like them have looked at. It can help to surface the user relevant information, whether that's trends or anomalies or KPIs or the segments that it looks like. Um, that might be of interest, and then you do some training. You have this selection process of people saying, "Oh yeah, let me look at this one. This one looks interesting," and you have that. You gain that data to train uh, and reinforce uh, the smarts of these uh, systems, and it can also help with guided analysis, suggesting suggesting visualizations and analyses. Um, so that's one of the themes I'm seeing. But you know, there's some others that are are kind of interesting. Another theme is in the natural language interaction. This is where you can type a query or speak a query, and the computer recognizes the key dimensions that are of interest that people seem to be after and can sort of interpret. We've seen this in the market for a number of years. Uh, IBM Watson Analytics can do that, um, Microsoft Power BI. But the next step is making it conversational to retain that context of the original query and to be able to drill down um, I had a briefing this week with a, a more of a startup thought spot, and they did a demo where, you know, they just, what are, what are the sales by state? And it came up with a visualization very quickly on the fly. It wasn't canned. It was something that kind of saw the dimensions of interest and came up with a visualization. But then it was also able to suggest, and you could drill down into dimensions like, okay, well, which are the stores that are really, you know, California sh showed to be the high sales state. Which are the stores? Which are the zip codes? What loyalty plan do those customers have? 
Um, you know, what are the products that they're purchasing most frequently? What's the income bracket? The system was able to suggest all these things kind of on the fly and take uh, the, the user deeper um, just with that drill down as opposed to, you know, you hear uh, Alexa and Google Home. It's like you, you ask one question at a time, but you can't take it further. You, you need the original context and to continue on that context and to probe and drill uh, to, to get to the, to the real answer that people are after. Wow. Hey, so what's hot on autonomous vehicles? That's the other thing that you're spending a lot of time on, talking about mobility, but not mobility like this, but mobility like this. And what's more interesting about that is uh, you, you also have a panel at uh, Connected Enterprise on this. So, so what's right. going on? What's, what are these big themes that are happening in AVs and all these generations of AVs from level three to level four to level five that folks are trying yeah, to get yeah. to? Well, yeah, this con conference season is heating up, and, uh, but I'm particularly looking forward to Constellation Connected Enterprise. Uh, it's, it's October uh, 26 to 29, I think. I have a panel uh, I'm leading uh, on. I, I think my rough title is AI, Autonomous Vehicles, and the next uh, disruptive My anchor guest is uh, Evangelos uh, Samudis. He's, he's an author. He wrote a book uh, earlier this year called The Big Data Opportunity in Our, Our Driverless Future. And one of the things I like about him is that he's kind of looking beyond 2020 and 2021. I think we have a, a given that we're going to have sort of level four automotive vehicle capabilities. You know, this, uh, the, the idea of autonomous driving is with us. Now let's look at what the impact uh, of, of that is going to be. And Evangelos is one of these guys who, you know, he's looking beyond the gee whiz to show me the money. And I think his take and, uh, you know, I think the car companies and uh, transit companies are, are following this and they have already come to the same conclusion that it's, you know, it's where money is going to prevail. It's, it, it's where it's going to be a big saving opportunity. That's where it's, you're going to see adoption. So, you know, ride hailing and you know, mobility on demand, trucking, logistics on demand, um, <clears throat> not so much the you know, individual ownership of autonomous cars. I mean, that might be more like, you know, we've seen with hybrid vehicles, there's still just a fraction of, of the market. Um, last week I was reading that in the UK, they're gonna do a trial next year of semi-autonomous trucks next year. Uh, this is technology that they've tested um, in Sweden and Germany where these trucks are, they're called connected convoys, are going from plants to the shipping center in Rotter Rotterdam. And the idea is platooning. So they have a, a lead truck and then two, two trucks right behind that lead truck. And they're like right on the bumper. That lead truck has the driver and they can intervene. The two trucks that follow are just following that lead vehicle. And the idea is, first of all, it maximizes drafting, so it improves the fuel efficiency. Yep. Uh, to cut on the congestion, um, and then presumably, once this is proven and shown to be safe, the lead driver comes out of that that well, lead and, truck. And that's that's really the whole value proposition. And if you look at the big picture, autonomous vehicles can can unleash literally trillions of dollars in in revenue not spent in upgrading freeways and infrastructure in the United States alone over the next 20 years because we can put a lot more cars on the road. They can use that next generation mobility to coordinate amongst themselves using you know, IoT devices, you know, 3D radar, all of those kinds of great technologies. Um, 
But I have a bet with uh, you know Enterprise Regular Vinny Merchandani about when is this going to happen? When's the tipping point? Uh, you know, what's the tech? What technologies are or what advances are required for us to actually get there so we get a, we can tap into that economic value? Well, you know, um, that's a good point. Um, you know, I think we're going to be dealing with unintended consequences, um, but I think the money is is what's going to drive. Um, I I yeah. couldn't say I'm not the I'm, I'll have some panelists who can speak to is it lidar or what is it that is you know the game changer. But I think um, you know the money matters here. Right. So trucking I think is is probably going to take the lead. You know, we have two and a half million truck drivers in the U.S. Very well paid job. Um, I've seen predictions that uh, within 10 years, we're going to see the long haul driver uh, disappear. This is, you know, from factory to distribution center, um, the, the major routes and not a lot of surface streets. And then within 20 years, it'll get to the, to the short haul, um, where it's that last mile from the DC to the, you know, to the front door, to the individual store, to the individual home. Um, so, you know, I, I look at an industry I was in for 20 years, uh, media. You know, we don't think about that in terms of AI, but media, man, that has gone through a digital transformation over 20 years. Yeah. And if you were inside it, you really didn't recognize the huge changes. But if you look back 20 years to the way media was and the way it is today, completely different. Uh, you're making me think about that scene in Logan where the autonomous trucks are like moving back and forth with each other. <laughs> they're running folks around. It's like there's no one in there. Things moving fast. So yeah, yeah. Hopefully, speed limits go up too with autonomous vehicles. So well, yeah, I'm, I've thought about that. It's like okay, well, these autonomous vehicle uh, companies aren't going to be able to program a vehicle to speed. You know, that'll be illegal. That'll be a lawsuit. You know, and that's why I don't think individual drivers are going to be so thrilled. I think uh, my colleague Alan Lepofsky talked about riding in one of these vehicles. And first it was really cool, and then it was really boring because it was following the speed limits and driving at the speed limit and not, you know, <laughs> stopping. And that's not the way you would want to drive unless you definitely were in traffic and you wanted to be working or more productive in another way, not the driving uh, experience you would want on your Vacation, say, or or being entertained. I, I imagine the, the self-driving vehicles are going to have a lot of screens on the inside to keep their passengers occupied. There you go. <laughs> well, here's the thing: I'm more worried about is like for a human to drive among autonomous vehicles. My insurance rates are going to go up. <laughs> I'm I'm like the wild card, right? It's like ah, it's a human. They're going to make a lot of mistakes. They're unpredictable, right? They might cut me off. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, real humans, you'll be relegated to the test track like everybody else, right? We were going to drive ourselves. Uh, it, it reminds me of a point that um, that Evangelos uh, makes in his book. It's that uh, you know th these car companies that exist today, if they hope to uh, be in the market in the future, they can't just kind of interact with these startups. They've got to act like startups. Um, and the three of us were recently at the Ford uh, Silicon Valley lab. We sort of had a company uh, offsite there and um, it was good to see uh, at Ford in particular they're not just thinking like they're a car company they're thinking they're a mobility company and that's the main thing that struck me at that visit that um, they weren't just working on cars they were also working on the total mobility they, they said we're gonna be a mobility company so we have to solve the parking problem we have to solve the last mile maybe we have systems that do timed or assigned or designated parking to eliminate cars circling and that congestion problem. Um, they were talking about railway uh, railway 
railway technology and autonomous van service and even bikes off that trunk of that commute um, in, a, in sort of a new public transit mobility on demand model. Uh, so good to see that some of these companies are um, just thinking outside the box of I'm a car manufacturer. Well, I, I was with you there, Doug, on that trip, and it was great to see uh, you know Ford with a innovation center in Silicon Valley because you know we're moving from drivetrains to silicon. Software is the most important thing about cars now, and that's a that's a huge change. And I think you know uh, uh, we see that Ford is doing that. I've been during a lot of other innovation centers the last couple of years, and this one, Ford's lab, felt a lot like a tech company, not like an auto manufacturer. It was interesting. Yeah. Well, but they also showed us a slide there to show they had a map of the Silicon Valley and how every other manufacturer also had an innovation center in Silicon Valley. Yeah. The real test is, um, and they made a point of talking about, it's not just a monthly call with Dearborn. There's uh, cross-filtering of, of these executives from, from Dearborn. It's And to Evangelo's point, it's they can't just talk to these innovators in Silicon Valley, they've got to act like them. Yeah, and, and what was also interesting about that is they're, they're building their new innovation lab and it was just across the street and it was like twice as big. <laughs> so right. definitely doubling down in the Valley on, uh, on the innovation centers. Well, this has been awesome, Doug. Thank you for being on the show. Where are you going to be in the next few weeks uh, in terms of conferences oh, well, and events? Yeah, I'm going to be at Microsoft Insight. Uh, I'm going to be at the Oracle Open World. I'm going to be at the Tableau Conference. I'm going to be at Dreamforce. Uh, uh, any number of events. Uh, Strata in New York, a big, a big uh, data event. So um, hope to see you all there and uh, have a great yeah, Labor Day. See you a lot of them there. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show, Doug. You can follow Doug at D H E N S C H E N S. So Doug Henschen, you can reach him there on Twitter and follow him for his insights on data to decisions. Leave off the S on the end. H-G-N-S-C-H-E-N. Sorry about that. So you got him here. So, and Constellations Conference is October 24th through 27th at the Half Moon Bay Ritz. So thank you for being on the show, Doug. Very good. Bye now. Very, very cool. We are 181 guests in on Disrupt TV. Diane, thank you so much for being our guest co-host today. Uh, where are you going to be in the next few weeks? What's going on with you? Well, same uh, thing uh, as Doug. It'll be a lot of those same events. Microsoft Insights, uh, the one I'm looking forward to in particular. I think uh, Microsoft has been on a real tear the last uh, year and a half, uh, putting out softer faster than most organizations can, uh, can absorb. I'm anxious to see what they're doing with artificial intelligence. Uh, we had Dreamforce speaking, um, and uh, you have lots of uh, ERP events, things like that. Very, very cool. This is awesome. Episode 78 next week. Adrian Fisher, CEO of Tinkerbots. If you haven't checked out Tinkerbots, you should. Think about the old ways. Tinker Toys meets robotics all in the one. And Michael Sonnerhalt, uh, he's the author of Think Bigger and 39 other winning strategies from a successful entrepreneur. Fun book to read if you haven't checked it out yet. And of course, Larry Dingen, a repeat host, editor, a repeat guest, editor-in-chief at ZDNet. So hey, thanks a lot for being on the show, everyone. And if it's Friday, it is Disrupt TV. See you guys. Thank mm -hmm. you.